0: Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout the month of March, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health.
1: What is the role of neurosurgical intervention for patients with depression and OCD? Will neurosurgery replace pharmacotherapy and behavioral therapy for these conditions, or should neurosurgery remain a last resort? You are listening to Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. Joining me to discuss new neurosurgical approaches in psychiatry is Dr. Stephen Dubovsky, professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo and adjoint professor of psychiatry and medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Dubovsky. Glad to be here. Now, neurosurgery for psychiatric conditions is this something new or is there some history of this?
0: Well, as you know, psychosurgery has a a long and checkered history in psychiatry. The first Nobel Prize in medicine for a psychiatric intervention was awarded to Moniz for developing the lobotomy, and Moniz was later shot by a lobotomized patient. So apparently everybody's a critic. (laughs)
1: Right. Uh, Not a big fan. Right. Uh
0: After the introduction of prefrontal lobotomy, this became a very popular intervention and you had itinerant neurosurgeons and even psychiatrists who went around the country and they would do lobotomies on a series of patients. Generally, these were transorbital, so they stuck a little stylus up through your eye and kind of moved it around and hoped that they hit the right thing. And, of course, this fell into quite a bit of disfavor. I think there were something like 20,000 of these procedures done. And the results were less than optimal, and so neurosurgery fell out of favor. This was given a little push by the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if you remember. Sure. uh, McMurtry there, Uh, first they punished him with ECT, and when that didn't work, they gave him a lobotomy. So people didn't think much of these procedures, but in recent years, there have been the advent of a number of neurosurgical procedures that were initially used for neurological illnesses rather than psychiatric illnesses, primarily for epilepsy and for Parkinson's disease. And these have been increasingly refined, and they've had some very good results with them. And for that reason, people got interested in potential applications in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a resurgence of interest in the newer neurosurgical procedures, particularly in depression and in obsessive compulsive disorder.
1: Let's take depression since it's probably the most common psychiatric disorder. Is this something that is becoming mainstream or when would we consider talking to someone who does a procedure for depression?
0: Well, in the case of depression, I should say generally to begin with, there are several types of neurosurgical procedures used for these disorders. For depression, there is currently, I suppose you would call it a mainstream intervention, and that's the vagus nerve stimulator, which has been approved by the FDA for refractory depression. And there are two broadly speaking types of neurosurgical interventions for both depression and OCD. Those are lesioning surgeries where you actually make a cut of some sort and deep brain stimulation. In the case of depression, as I said, the vagus nerve stimulator is approved as a treatment for refractory depression. This is really based on one pivotal trial that was extended over time as they added more patients to it. This was a study eventually that got a little over 200 patients with very refractory depression. Mm -hmm. The average patient had 16 antidepressant trials. Half of them had had ECT. Although if you look at their depression rating scale scores, they weren't tremendously severe, but there was a lot of chronicity and treatment resistance. And this study had essentially three phases. The first was a placebo-controlled phase where all patients got the stimulator implanted, and this is a pretty straightforward procedure, and then the stimulator was turned on in half the patients and not the other half, and there was a three-month double-blind study, and in that study, the vagus nerve stimulator was no better than sham vagus nerve stimulation, so it didn't work yeah. over three months of treatment. Then what they did was they took everybody who had the real stimulator had the thing turned on, and they treated them for another nine months, and they took the patients who had the sham vagus nerve stimulator and they then turned it on for them. And all those patients got treated openly for a total uh, one year study. And here what they found after a year of open treatment essentially was that of the patients who completed a year of treatment, and they lost about 50 patients out of 222 or roughly, of the patients who remained in that study, it was a total of 177.
1: Mm-hmm. A
0: little over a fourth of them had a 50% reduction in depression rating scale scores and about 15% had what they called a remission. Now, when they followed those patients up after a total of two years, they found that that response rate was maintained in about three-fourths of the patients, that they still had that result. The thing is, the only placebo-controlled part of this study was the first three months. The rest of it's open-label treatment, and at the same time that they're Continuing the vagus nerve stimulator, they're changing the medicines around. Uh-huh. They had an attempt to have a control group where they took a group of patients in a study for some other reason. Those patients were similar to the ones in the vagus nerve stimulator study, and they compared response rates of those patients treated with medications and they thought that the vagus nerve patients had a better outcome, but they weren't comparable groups, and it wasn't a study designed to compare the two treatments. So you really don't have Mm -hmm. any placebo-controlled long-term treatment, and you've got a minority of patients who do well, and those patients who do well continue to do well after two years. Mm -hmm. The thing is, by doing well, I mean, we're talking about a fourth of the patients being half as depressed, And so they're still ill, and really a minority of them having minimal symptoms. There's not a lot of data on how well those patients are functioning either. So if you look at this, there are some people who probably will benefit from a vagus nerve stimulator. Nobody knows how to tell who they are, how to predict in advance who's going to respond and who won't. And if you've got $25,000, which is about what the stimulator costs, plus the cost of adjusting the stimulator and nothing else has worked, it mm-hmm. might be reasonable, but I just don't think there's enough data really to tell you who's a good candidate for this type of
1: treatment. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me to discuss new neurosurgical approaches in psychiatry is Dr. Stephen Dubofsky, professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo and a joint professor of psychiatry and medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Dubofsky, what about lesioning and deep brain stimulation in depression? Is that being done?
0: It is, and there is currently a pivotal trial underway for surgical procedures in depression. And as as you just said, there are two ways to do this. You can do an ablative procedure, and that's either done putting an electrode into a particular region in the brain, usually the anterior cingulate cortex, and turning on the heat or more precisely really with a gamma knife. And what a gamma knife is is very intensely focused x-rays that can produce very precise lesions. Uh, This is primarily used to treat brain tumors, but it's used in these lesioning studies as well. And uh, here you have some research for lesioning procedures. The patients in these studies are very depressed and very persistently depressed as well. For example, there was a review of the cases getting anterior cingulotomies, a small number of patients, but these patients had been severely depressed for nine years. They'd had 11 antidepressant trials. They all had ECT, and they'd had no response at all. In that group, about half the patients either responded or had a total remission of symptoms, So you had some dramatic results there, but in a small number of patients. There was another study of bilateral anterior cingulotomy with a second one being done or a subcaudate procedure being done, cutting tracks below the caudate. And here, too, good response in a quarter of them, partial response in half. In these populations, these patients have been ill on average, almost 25 years. So, these are very ill patients. Main side effects here are occasionally you'll get post-operative infections and seizures, but they're not getting a lot of neurological deficits. There's an occasional report of difficulty with cognition, but it's really not at all common. Interestingly, in some of the studies of all of these procedures in depression, there's a certain rate of suicide as well. And that's probably not the procedure causing suicide. I think it's that patients are convinced that this is their last hope and when it doesn't work, that uh, they feel hopeless.
1: Well, that sounds fairly impressive in this very difficult group of patients, a procedure that doesn't seem to have a lot of negative fallout, having some decent results. Is deep brain stimulation similar to that?
0: Now, what deep brain stimulation involves is putting a very fine electrode into the same area of the brain that you might otherwise lesion. And in the case of depression, this is essentially going to be in the limbic system, in the caudate, the ventral striatum, the the internal capsule. And what happens is you would think that Deep brain stimulation stimulates your brain, but it actually inhibits brain function. Mm -hmm. And then with this particular procedure, you will image a hyperactive region of the brain, put your electrode into that particular region, and turn on the stimulator.
1: To shut it it down. And it
0: shuts off hyperactivity in that area. And in some of these studies, the most impressive ones really, again, small numbers of patients from a group in Toronto, you have patients with extremely severe, very refractory depression, getting a deep brain stimulator put in in the subcolossal cingulate gyrus below the corpus callosum in a hyperactive area that they image with a PET scan. And most of these electrodes have four different points on them and you stimulate each one until you get the best result. And these patients, the ones who responded, would say as soon as you turn the stimulator on, the depression's gone. And they'd turn it off, and the depression would come back immediately. And so for some of these patients, now this particular group is treated now, at least they've reported on a total of about 20 patients with very refractory ECT. And in that group, 60% responded, 35% had a remission and a year later it was about the same result. And that's pretty much, you know, what uh, others are finding as well, that you turn that stimulator on and it just seems magical. So here again, it's not everybody is responding and not everybody is getting a dramatic response, but some patients there are getting a very dramatic response. And the advantage of all of these procedures is if you are able to image A particular hyperactive region, then you have a target for your deep brain stimulator and then you can predict who may be more likely to respond. Not all of these studies have done that. Some of them are just putting them into regions that where you think it should be helpful. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but in ongoing studies what they're looking at is let's do functional imaging of these patients, let's find a hyperactive area and let's make that our target. And then you've got a much more precise type of procedure.
1: Well, I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky, enlightening us about some new neurosurgical approaches in psychiatry. We talked about depression and the role of the vagus nerve stimulator, which is of somewhat questionable value, it sounds like, even though it's FDA approved, but then talked about lesioning techniques as well as deep brain stimulation. As an internist, I can certainly... of some of my patients who hate taking medicines or who have sexual side effects from their antidepressants. And maybe as these get refined and brought to less severely depressed patients, we're going to see a bigger role for this. It's very exciting and intriguing information. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dubowski. Uh, This is the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio and XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us also at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to this month's special series focused on neurology and psychiatry. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. And download ReachMD's free iPhone app, Medical Radio, to listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you enjoy on XM160, plus CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Get the Medical Radio app today.